myself, uh, Justin McCarran, resilience coach, and Emma, uh, Emma Bridger from People Lab, and B. Ganaway from Fathom XP, and also we have on screen as well Katie Austin from People Lab. We are delighted, as the Irish chat show host Gabriel used to say, delighted and excited to welcome our very special guests today, Dr. David R. Hamilton, PhD. Um, that's a man with, I think, far too many initials in his name. Uh, you know, it's just showing off, frankly. But um, we're delighted, delighted. Seriously, I'm being facetious. We're really excited to have David here. David is, uh, very briefly to tell you, he's an author of 10, um, 10 uh, books. And David has an interesting second career. He was a, uh, his PhD was in organic chemistry. And he was uh, spent four years working as a scientist in the pharmaceutical industry before discovering, getting really interested in the placebo effect, uh, if this is correct, and then resigned on the, from the industry and now spends his life talking and spreading kindness. Is that a reasonable introduction, David? That's pretty good, actually, yeah. Done with, with great style and a little bit of comedy. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. Thank that you very much. encapsulates it quite well, I think. Super dupes. Now, look, we're going to have a proper chat with, with David later um, in a few moments. We've got a couple, I've got a little bit of housekeeping to do, which is to welcome people who haven't joined the Reset show before. This is our third show where we're getting more and more people are getting involved. It, the, the whole thing came together when... Um, Myself and, and Emma and Belinda have been working on some other projects and we started to have this conversation about how can we help people, uh, particularly people in organisations, move and navigate through this uncharted territory of um, kind of back to school, back to work. It's, we're in adapt and renew phase. Um, initially it was kind of how do we just cope? But we're moving into a new phase and we are exploring how to get the best out of people uh, individually so that they can bring the best of themselves to their lives at work organizationally. So we have a, 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 an interest across lots of different areas of the topic and we are gathering together like-minded individuals, people with a passion for people. Um, we have developed an idea which we're calling loosely the Reset Lab, which we'll talk to you more about later. But the idea is that the show is a springboard to get you involved. So we'll be asking you for your thoughts throughout the show. And we'd really encourage you, if you haven't already, to sign up to the Eventbrite link, because that way you will get, um, you'll get the notifications of the upcoming events. You'll get all of our research afterwards. You'll get access to the podcast, to, uh, to the web recording. Um, you'll be kept up to date about the Reset Lab um, as, it, as it's, um, as it's uh, forming. Uh, those of you who have been on the call before know we like to get things warmed up with a brief poll. So Katie, would you like to um, introduce and launch the poll? Uh, for those of you that are listening and not, not look, watching as well or listening afterwards, our poll question is, how big a focus is empathy in your organisation? And we've got a Likert scale, so we've got one, it's not a focus at all, to five, it drives almost every decision we make. So that's the question we've got, how big a focus is empathy in your organisation? If you're not in an organisation, if you're um, maybe a freelancer or whatever, think about the teams that you work with most regularly, about how big a focus empathy is in that team. I can see the votes as they're coming in. It's, it's neck and neck. We're just waiting for a few postal votes to be... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, we've got a 36% saying 
it's a big focus. So one of the things we're going to be talking today is uh, whether that has changed. Is, is that a new thing in your organization? Um, so Lee, do you want to jump in and take over? Yeah, fantastic. Um, so a, a little tiny bit of background. Emma and I have spent the last few months writing a book about employee experience design. Um, we're not promoting the book, it's not out yet, um, but one of the key um, methods that we use in our approach to designing better employee experiences is design thinking. Now, at the heart of design thinking is empathy. So um, this got me really interested in, in this whole concept of empathy, what it means, where it shows up. But it's not clearly it's not just me that's been massively <laughs> intrigued by empathy in the workplace and the wider world. Empathy is just in sort of in the ascendant in terms of a topic of conversation right now. So um, even if you look at things like Google search trends, it, it's, it's massively up over the trend is, is, is massively up over the last five years and massively up in the last few months. Um, the, and we've got in the, over in the US, it's, we're talking about having this as being the first empathy election, which is kind of strange given the president they've got at the moment, but maybe that's the whole point. And then sort of back closer to home in our world of, of employee experience and what's happening within organizations. Um, this, the word empathy pops up all over the place. The recent, just out um, Mercer Global Trend, Talent Trends Report is actually calling itself um, Women with Empathy. So empathy is absolutely everywhere at the moment. So um, I'd, love, I'd really like to throw a question over to David at this point. So I'm interested in the links between empathy and kindness. Now, David, obviously you write about, talk about kindness all the time. I'm just wondering how those two things fit together in your world. Yeah, well, empathy, well, thanks for the question. Yeah, em empathy sort of is the starting point that results in an act of kindness. You, you can think of it like, I suppose, like a little seed that grows into a flower. Uh, and the seed is empathy. Empathy is often defined as, I feel with you. So I'm here with you, I'm sharing your pain. And then what happens is that seed grows into a stem and the stem is what you might call compassion. So empathy evolves into compassion, I feel for you. So empathy is I feel with you and there I know what it's like for you and I'm here with you. Compassion is it's a slight change. It's I know what it's like for you, but now I'm thinking I would like for you to be free of that pain, of that suffering, for example. If you follow it in the brain, actually, you can see the empathy center of the brain lit up when a person's experiencing empathy, and then the compassion center lights up as the attention goes from I feel with you to I feel for you. I wish you to be free from your pain. So that's the kind of distinction between empathy and compassion. But then that stem grows ahead, and the head is the flower of kindness. And a, a, an act of kindness usually comes out of that, that desire for someone to be free of their pain. So it starts with, I feel with you, I recognize you're struggling or suffering here, into compassion, I, I recognize that, now I wish for you to be better, free of that, and then it moves into, how can I help you, act of kindness. So that's kind of how the transition works, if that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. It's such a visual picture in my mind. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're um, welcome. 
We'll, Dave, we're going to come back to you in just a moment. Well, we've got a really lovely message from um, Professor uh, Jamil Zaki, from, who's a professor at Stanford, who's written a book called The War for Kindness. Um, and it's, it's got a longer title than that to do with creating empathy in a fractured world. So he's just recorded a brief message for us, which I really like because it's really practical. Again, so flipping back to the sort of the sense of what does this mean for organizations? How, what do we how do we work with this in organizations how do we bring it to life so he's he's recorded a few thoughts for us which we're going to share now and then um dave will come back to you and hear your thoughts on what jamil has to share and also the rest of you as well to love to know what what you're doing in your organizations to bring empathy and kindness to life katie are you okay to play hello and thanks for the invitation to join you virtually for this terrific event. Um, so my name is Jamil Zaki. I'm a professor of psychology at Stanford University and author of the book, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. Uh, a lot of my work with organizations centers around teaching people about the value of empathy, which thankfully has become less of an uphill battle these days. I feel like years ago when I would talk to leaders and folks in HR and executives about empathy at work, they would tend to look at me a little bit askance and say, well, you know, empathy sounds nice, but I don't know whether it's really appropriate for the world of business where we rely on ruthless competition and individualism in order to succeed. It turns out though that that view that we need to compete in order to succeed at work uh, is almost entirely backwards. There's decades of evidence from my own field, psychology and other disciplines that demonstrate that when workplaces are empathic, people win. They're healthier, uh, they feel safer to take risks and they therefore have greater morale. Um, they collaborate more effectively and also work with greater motivation when they believe that uh, others around them are empathic and their organization values empathy. This I think is really important. I mean, at least in California where I am, there's an arms race for top talent. Um, and a lot of companies do all sorts of things like create nap pods and snack bars back when we used to go to the office um, to try to get the best people to work for them. But it turns out that one of the biggest competitive advantages that an organization might have when it comes to recruiting great people is right under our noses. It's the ability to make people feel heard seen and understood. So I think that empathy was like an organizational superpower even before this year. I think it was something that leaders and organizations should try to push for, should try to gain as much as they can. But that's even more true now than it was before and maybe the, the truest that it's ever been in my adult life. As we reel from this global pandemic and all sorts of other problems associated with it, loss, mourning, fear, uncertainty. We need each other more than ever. And thankfully, there are things that organizations can do to help people feel like they're together, even during this difficult time while they're apart. The first thing that I wanna stress is that empathy is a skill. It's something that helps us, but also something that we can work on on purpose and we can get better at over time. And that's not just true at the individual level. Leaders can help to foster empathy throughout their entire organizations. And in fact, I do a lot of leadership training and workshops to help people learn how to inject empathy into their organizations through really uh, practices that are based in research. 
A couple of those that I want to share, and they, they're going to sound really simple, but they are nonetheless, I think, quite powerful. The first is just to make sure that conversations stay human, especially these days as we're working remotely, lots of us sort of on video chat all the time. We can sometimes lose out on those minutes before or after a meeting when people are just kind of milling about, talking about you know, a soccer game that occurred or talking about their kids or talking about a stressor that they're going through. Those in-between times are so critical to foster a sense of human connection at work. And I think that sometimes they can be left by the wayside these days during COVID-19. So one thing that I really encourage people to do is to make time and insert slack into their day where they can de devote themselves specifically to human connection, checking in with people, expressing interest and curiosity, not just about them as colleagues, but as people, and then following up, uh, expressing support and concern, and even trying to help when we can. Our colleagues are going through so much now in so many different ways and staying informed, keeping that sense of connection is critical. Empathic communication can also be carried out during work meetings, right? To talk not just about what we're doing together as a team, but why we're doing it, what we care about, the way that the work that we're doing is meaningful to us, especially during this moment where meaning matters more than, than almost ever before. A second thing that I often encourage organizations to do is to make empathy loud. Right? Behaviors that we see that are popular or rewarded become contagious. I suppose a better form of contagion than the one we've been dealing with. Um, and therefore, if leaders elevate empathic behaviors, if they recognize and highlight and incentivize those behaviors, they tend to ripple out through an organization and become more popular. We can set norms and those norms in turn, in turn affect the way that we treat each other. So those are just a couple of quick thoughts about the importance of empathy now and ways that we might continue to foster it. I think more than ever, we need to not just be working together, but we need to be together and feel connected to one another. Wishing everyone over there well. Fantastic. Thanks for playing that, Katie. That's brilliant. David, um, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. And also, it would be a great time to maybe look backwards and think about actually how you've ended up here doing the work that you do now. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, that, that was absolutely terrific. I mean, I absolutely love uh, what he was saying. Uh, and I totally agree. And one, one of the first things I, I'd point out, there was something he said very important is that we, because it underpins what he's talking about in the organisations about, about you know, fostering empathy. Empathy is a trainable thing. You can learn empathy. It's not something you're either born with or you're not. It's some, the, the, the empathy centers of the brain are plastic. Uh, and what I mean, you may have, some of the, the, the listeners here may be familiar with a term from neuroscience called neuroplasticity. It really just means that the brain isn't a solid lump of hardwired matter. It's constantly molding and changing it's literally like dough before you put it in the oven and you can shape it into any form so the empathy center of the brain and empathy compassion centers of the brain have actually been shown with practice to grow in the same way that a muscle grows you know like if you exercise a muscle you'll notice two things the muscle becomes firmer and it becomes larger 
So in the brain undergoes muscle growth as well, but it's called neuroplasticity. And people training in empathy and compassion literally end up with thicker, larger, more powerful empathy and compassion centers of the brain. A, a, a second thing is that we are absolutely genetically wired for human connection. And human connection is only possible with empathy, really. The actual genes for empathy and human connection are some of the oldest in the human genome. They're about 500 million years old and four days. No, not the four days, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but they're exceptionally old genes. And what that means, for a genes to last that long, in the human genome tells us that connection and empathy are of absolutely fundamental survival importance, not just for survival and thriving in organizations, but literally for survival and thriving of the human species itself. We literally fundamentally require connection. So empathy opens the doorway to that and it helps us to understand and relate to each other. And, and what, what he was saying there is, it, those behaviors become contagious and we absolutely know that their scientific studies literally follow like the ripple effect of kindness which usually comes off the back of empathy and it literally can ripple through any bonded group any group that interact with other each other frequently you will literally find a ripple effect of these positive positive behaviors so I absolutely love uh, what he was saying there Thank you so much. And in your, I think it's your most recent book, The Little Book of Kindness, you've got an amazing um, story about the ripple effect of, um, of kindness, which I absolutely loved. And we'll stick a link to the, to, to the books as well, which I think are on a deal at the moment as well, which is brilliant. Um, so thank you. How did you get into this? Uh, oh, really? Oh, sorry, I forgot to add that part. Yeah, I forgot you'd asked me that. Uh, well, I, I was a research and development scientist uh, with a big pharmaceutical company, AstraZeneca actually, and uh, I was building drugs. For, I was involved in building and developing drugs for cardiovascular disease and cancer, but I was always more interested in the human side and not so much working with test tubes in a lab. I, I loved interacting with people. You know, I've always been quite an, a, a people person, if you will. I was going to say empathetic, but I don't really blow my own trump, but I've always been like, I've always loved people and interacting with people. And I always loved to teach. And I found myself intrigued by the placebo effect. I was fascinated with just how many people would improve on medical trials, not getting real drugs, but getting sugar tablets. And when I started to research it in my, in my own time, you realize that, that belief or feeling itself cause physiological changes in the brain. And the brain produces what it needs to produce to deliver that which you believe, expect, or feel is supposed to happen. So I, I found the research so compelling that I resigned from the industry and, you know, I started writing books and I've just not been able to stop ever since because whenever I finish one book, there's a whole heap of new fascinating stuff that comes out. So I end up writing another book uh, on it, really. But that's kind of how I made the transition. Thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, as Justin said in the chat, do add your questions and thoughts to the chat to all our guests who have joined us today particularly love to know on reflecting on the poll results that we had earlier what you guys are doing to bring empathy to life across across your organizations how are you maintaining and, and delivering on that focus on empathy and um, so i'm going to invite justin and emma to um bring some more questions for you david 
David, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And you are absolutely speaking our language. And this is the sort of world we work in and we do this day in, day out. And we have backgrounds in psychology and resilience and positive psychology. So wonderful stuff. Um, I guess what I'm really interested in is, um, you know, kindness is a dirty word in organisations is my experience. And I, I, you know, set up my own business sort of 10 years ago. I worked in big corporates for many years and, and I thought, you know, work shouldn't be a miserable experience, but it often is. And, and people don't behave well at work. And, you know, often, you know, Jamil talked about it, but even today, you know, we talk about kindness at work. You see people think, well, there's no room for kindness here. And it's almost like a dirty word. I mean, what's your experience with that? And, and, and how do you convince cynical C-suite that this is absolutely has scientific background and it has merit and is worth investing in and, and you know, yeah. focusing on? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I had a massive upturn in the number of talks and workshops I ran for organisations this year. Not long after lockdown, Mental Health Awareness Week, the focus is kindness. The yeah. theme, and I ended up having a, a, a very large amount of talks, online Zoom and Microsoft Teams, Google Hangouts and all that with a number of organisations who were all interested in how do we bring more kindness into our organisation. Uh, and the way I got the message across was with uh, hard science, peer-reviewed science. The first thing that research shows about kindness is kindness directly improves mental health. It directly improves. That it, uh, research shows that being kind is literally improves happiness, satisfaction, but it's also in the longer term. It offers protection against mild to moderate depression. And one of the reasons for that is it takes you out of yourself and it, it trains you into being more empathetically aware of the needs and feelings of other people. And that little shift is actually a slightly protective towards depression uh, for a number of different reasons. But another angle I take on it is the physical effects of, of kindness, not just in the brain. We know that, that kindness, due to how it feels, is physiologically the opposite of stress. Now, I often ask people, what's the opposite of stress? And almost everyone will say it's peace, it's calm, it's relaxation. That's what I would expect people to say. But in actual fact, those are not the opposite of stress. They're the absence of stress. Physiologically speaking, the opposite of stress is kindness or it's how kindness feels. Because stress, the physiological effects of stress on the, the brain, the cardiovascular system, the immune system, are not due to a situation, but due to how a situation feels. It's how stress feels that triggers all these phenomena. Stress, first and foremost, and its effects is a mind-body phenomena. Mm. So kindness how that feels, some psychologists call it elevation. You feel it nice or warm or connected. And what that does, that feeling itself triggers almost an equal in strength but opposite in direction effect. So, for example, where stress hormones increase blood pressure, kindness hormones, that really are such things as, I call them kindness hormones, really to, to draw that, to show the similarity uh, with stress you know, in the terms of they're produced because of how something feels. So kindness hormones, lower blood pressure, where stress hormones suppress the immune system, kindness hormones elevate the immune system. And you can actually chart many, many different physical effects of stress. And you find that the physical effects of kindness are literally the opposite of those things. So you have not just 
psychological effects, but actual physical effects. So I found as I've been communicating these hard scientific points to, to people, not just in organizations, but ordinary groups of people, it, it's like a, it, it really resonates so deeply because we intuitively, we know this is true, but it, once you see the science and understand this is physically true, then it literally encourages you to say, well, wait a minute, I want to be healthier. One of the simplest things I can do is help someone. But not just that, I can cultivate a mindset where I actually wish for people to be happy. I can cultivate a, a mindset where I actually think kindly of people and I communicate kindly with people and be kind. And those three things, thinking, speaking, and being kind physically, literally impact the brain and the phys physical body in an extremely health-giving way. So I found science has been my route into convincing people why this is so important. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And that really resonates. And uh, I think it's a really great tip. I mean, and again, we're also fans of using the science. We somehow work with a lot of... Uh, a lot of people who are kind of maybe, you know, not, I'm not stereotyping here, but engineer based, lots of scientists, and they, they kind of need that convincing around it. This isn't kind of fluff, I would say, this isn't fluffy new age hippie stuff. There's a really great, robust evidence base that demonstrates this. So yeah. thank you for that. And what we can do um, for our, our viewers uh, is to share some links to some of the, the great studies that exist out there that are just very simply make the case for this kind of stuff but um that's really helpful thank you for that justin i'm sure you've got some questions as well don't want to don't want to hog the time here <laughs> uh, Be kind. I, have. Be kind. <laughs> I have but as always this is more about our uh viewers and listeners than it is about me so uh, katie i know there's been some comments you wanted to pick up on yeah that's right so we've had we've had a couple of comments um got a comment from fiona um, who said, I'm not here as a representative of an organisation. I have very recently resigned from my job through burnout, partly COVID, partly the nature of the job, lots to do with difficult family circumstance. My employer was an elected representative whose empathy was absolutely fantastic. The culture within the office was so supportive. But ultimately, I had to prioritise myself for the first time. And I feel like a newborn practising this kindness on myself. So I think that's a really, really good point. Is mm. starts with you. <laughs> I'd really like to pick up on that with you, David, because one of the features of our chats is that we tend to cover in these conversations broad organisational questions and then really specific personal questions. And I'm really interested in, in the personal aspect of the practice of kindness. It was something uh, you, you wrote in uh, the, the latest book, the, um, the, small, the Little Book of Kindness, and it really struck me. It was something about self-criticism not being natural, that self-criticism is learned. Yeah. And, uh, I was really interested in that. Can you, can you uh, talk to the rest of us about that, the difference between, you know, turning down the volume of self-criticism and turning up self-compassion? Yeah, yeah. Well, well f first of all, that, that, that's a really important point because we're not born criticising ourselves. I mean, a, a baby doesn't, you know, when it's starting to walk, doesn't say, you know what, I'm not very good at walking compared to other people or, or go look at my hair. You know, it's, it's something that we culturally, we culturally learn as we go through life because it's part of what, cult, what our culture works and what we see in the TV, what we hear other people talking about. But what happens is the voice of the self-critic, depending upon 
a person's life experiences. Some people have more extreme experiences than others, but depending on, most of us develop a, a silent and sometimes a very loud voice of the self-critic. Uh, and, and so, but there's ways that we can silence that voice and replace it with self-compassion. One is a, a compassion-based meditation. I call them kindfulness practices. So you know we have mindfulness where you, the simplest form of mindfulness is you simply breathe, but you notice that you're breathing. And what you do is you train the noticing part of the brain. In other words, you become mindful of the fact that you're breathing. You take that part of the brain to the gym. It makes you better at self-control and concentration. But when you practice kindfulness, in other words, you do the breathing thing, but you introduce kind thoughts of people. Research shows it literally builds the left hand, slight bias towards the left hand side of that front part of the brain. It's a real physical effect. But what that does is it begins to, to reduce the, the, the loudness of the voice of self-criticism. Because part of the kindfulness practices are when you turn kindness in on yourself. And I, I love what, what the last comment was all about is, is she did this for herself. I am so warm by that. That's an act of self-compassion, self-compliance, self-kindness. The more we do that, the more the self-critical voice in time begins to reduce. I've got a practice I call the inner Buddha exercise where you literally allow a three-way conversation between the critical portion of yourself, the, the, the part of you that feels wounded by the critic and your deeper, wiser, more compassionate self. I call it the inner Buddha. And I allow them to have a, a written conversation that might be one page or 10 pages. And, and each time you write down exactly what the critical voice would be saying and the wounded voice, but you finish the conversation on the voice of your inner Buddha. And, and what happens is that trains you to listen to that deeper voice, the compassionate voice, because we've just learned to listen to the critical voice. And what it does, it reminds you there's another part of you there. It's much wiser and much deeper. And if you listen to it often enough, it becomes the dominant voice. And then we become naturally, as a reflex, more self-compassionate. But it is trainable. Lovely. Thank you. That really speaks to um, both, the, both the comments um, from Fiona, but also uh, that's a really lovely for me to hear about the personal practice because, you know, we always, we always do blend these two things on, on the call. We talk, well, what can we do organizationally and from, from um, you know, from a, a design perspective, but also what can we do personally? We can do both of those things, obviously, feed into each other. Uh, Katie, um, back to you for the other comments. So we also have a question from Lucy. So a question for David. Um, we know from research that stress impacts our ability to be empathetic. How can we support people that are stressed at work and the pandemic, et cetera, to build their empathy and kindness? Yeah, well, uh, the, the first, first thing to notice is that kindness is the opposite of stress. So uh, any, any opportunity to, uh, I think Jamil said, it, reaching out to people, I mean, the act of reaching out to people replaces stress with empathy and, and, and kindness. You know, literally asking yourself, is there someone, maybe, it might be family, or it might be a friend or a neighbour or someone in the organisation that, you know, maybe could do with a little bit of a chat or a little bit of assistance, even an offer of help. And the act of reaching out itself begins to, it's why kindness can be uh, an antidote to depression. Because what it does, it takes you away from your own feelings about yourself. If they're, they're 
stressful or, or negative or your own life situation. And it temporarily places your focus on the needs of another person. And even if it's just for a few moments a day, your attention is taken away from what's stressing you into the needs of another person. And then your natural empathy and wish to help begins to come out as you reach out. And the more we do that, the more that attention gradually lifts and it's like the stress and, and the you know, possible anxiety and things begin to dissipate as we bring more of that reaching out uh, into, into our experience. So literally you find that empathy and kindness begin to take the steam out of stress. It, there was a study actually that looked at people's stress score over a period of three weeks and also their kindness score. So that to fill in a questionnaire, uh, on a scale zero to 10, what's been your average level of stress today? On a scale, you know, also what's been roughly to the best of your recall, how many kind things did you do today? And you, so you'd have a kindness score. When they added up all the data for all of the people over every single day over the three weeks, they found that on the days where the kindness score was high, i.e. The, the number of acts of kindness were high, that the stress score was low. And on the days when the stress score was high, the kindness score was low. And it was like a seesaw. You literally found that as we increase acts of kindness, which can be just reaching out and asking someone, or it, if, if they need help, it could even be something as simple as holding a door for someone. It could be an email, it could be a gratitude. But as we increase the kindness, the stress, like a seesaw began to come down. And that was some of the psychological evidence of that opposite effect of kindness with stress. So literally reaching out can provide that de-stressing effect. Katie, there's um, another comment there. Do you mind picking up on? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, the, the, first of all, just, just a comment from, from Fiona to say that she's got a bit of a paradox to that. Um, being a full-time carer of a profoundly disabled son um, and how that can bring on its own stress. Yeah. Um, I think that's quite an interesting one, actually. And um, I, I guess another question for you, David. Um, how do you stop empathy um, almost consuming you a little bit? I think we've all had experiences where we may be um, trying to support somebody and, and taking yeah. on a little bit of it ourselves and, and, finding, and then finding that we struggle with that. So Yeah, and it, built, it builds on what Fiona's point there was that the research shows that, that kindness has to be voluntarily given, uh, but once, once it becomes uh, too much, you know, re there was a study actually that looked, about the, that looked at the number of hours of volunteer work people did per week, and kindness was beneficial up to a point where it becomes stressful. And this is particularly the case with carers of children and with carers of elderly, patient, elderly parents that uh, kindness is something because of your nature, you're doing so much of it, it becomes tiring and exhausting. It's literally, it's, it's, it's a massive part of your life. And, and then it requires a different form of kindness. It requires a little bit more self-kindness, finding a way to get some support from other people, if that is possible, whether it's a support group or being able to lean on someone else's shoulders. The kindness has to turn inwards on yourself when it becomes a bit too much focus on other people. You know, uh, on the empathy thing, that there's an empathy scale that you can, you can measure empathy. And people who score very, very high on empathy tend to take on board other people's stuff 
Uh, and, you know, you could, it's actually called, in some, depending on how you look at it, it's called the emotional contagion. And just like you can catch the cold, you can catch an emotion. Uh, and it's facilitated through a little circuit in the brain called the mirror neuron system. And for example, if I'm smiling a lot, your mirror neuron system is an interconnected network of brain cells that mirror the expression you're seeing on my face. And so if I'm smiling a lot, your mirror neuron system will literally mirror, it will take a, a 3D snapshot in real time and it will replicate the, emotional, the emotions that go with that facial expression. So if you're with someone who's happy, you'll probably feel happier. If you're with someone who's stressed a lot, you probably feel a bit more stressed. People that are high in empathy tend to be particularly sensitive to people's negative emotions. Uh, and we pick it on it. We don't realize that the reason why we might feel a little agitated or stressed is not because of something in our own life, because of what we've picked up from someone else. And so one of the simplest ways you can do, that practices you can do, is notice that that's happening. If you're high in empathy, notice when, how you're feeling after contact with someone who's maybe being angry, aggressive, stressed, anxious, or something. And one of the simplest things you can do is break the pattern of contagion. The easiest way to do it is scramble your face because the major way your brain's picking it up is facial expression. So rub your face like that, you know, particularly these muscles, orbicularis oculi, this muscle, it, zygomaticus major that pulls your lips into a smile, but scramble the facial muscles. And then very importantly, lengthen your, straighten your back, your spine, drop your shoulders and breathe. And now what you're doing, the most, the data your brain is receiving now is I've got this. I'm more of a, and what's happening is your brain is the, the emotional circuitry of your brain is responding to your dominant physical expressions and breathing patterns. And it's a really simple way to, to almost block negative emotional contagion. It's really cool. It's such, it works so, that. so fast. That's brilliant. That's excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We have another question in the chat um, from Cathy. Um, can you force kindness? It's, it's a strange question perhaps, but if we are feeling judgmental or resentful of others, our willingness for kindness is minimal. Yeah, it, it is. If you feel judged by others, it, it literally gets under your skin a little bit. You, you can't really force kindness. I, I always say kindness is an invitation. Kindness is something that, that comes because it feels like the right thing to do. And it's funny, I, I call this nature's catch-22. The only way to benefit psychologically and physiologically from an act of kindness is if you mean it. If you don't mean it, if you're just doing it because you think you should or it's forced, there's no psychological nor physiological benefit. The reason for that is the physiological effects of kindness, just like the, just parallel with the physiological effects of stress, are due to how kindness feels, just like the physiological effects of stress are due to how stress feels. So the only way to get how kindness feels is if you mean what you're doing. If you're not really meaning it, then you won't feel it. You have to mean it to feel it. So I call it nature's catch-22. It's almost like nature is saying, you will only be rewarded if you do this because it's the right thing to do. Because you, because you mean it, it's off your own back. It's not forced. Because you mean it, you feel it, you're moved with empathy or compassion and you be kind, then you'll feel it and then you'll get nature's reward. So I call it nature's catch 22. 
Thank you. You're welcome. B, um, no, no further questions in the chat at the moment. Shall I hand back over? Yeah, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Um, one, just to sort of flip it back to perhaps more of an organizational context, one of the things that we're going to share with you after this is one of the tools that we use a lot in the work that we do around employee experience with organizations is a, is a persona tool. So it's actually, if you're working with an organization and you're trying to create a more empathic culture within your organization, it's a can feel like a really overwhelming thing to do. So we use a, a really simple tool called a persona, which is a way of creating a, a picture of a person or a group of people within your organization. And I think that's a really useful tool for two reasons. One, which is the process of creating it actually taps into that empathy and it actually helps you really stand in somebody else's shoes and understand the world through their eyes to a certain extent, as far as you can anyway. Um, so, and I think the other really, the, the other really beneficial use of the persona is when you then think about creating change within your organization for these people that, that you have now got a better sense of who they are, because yeah. it's hard to relate to lots and lots of individuals, particularly if you're an organization of you know, 150,000 people. So that's one of the, it's just a really practical tool that we'll share after the session so I just wanted to mention that so when you get it it's got a little bit more of context but that's it from me so um Justin and Emma do you want to have any further thoughts or questions for David before we wrap up um I was just going to say thank you so much David it's been amazing loved every minute of it and um you know just really I think Justin mentioned this before actually so I'm kind of nicking Justin's comment um but building on it you've got such a fantastic way of taking some very complex and, and inaccessible ideas quite often, very academic ideas and put them into a really lovely, plain English, accessible, you know, articulation. And, 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 you know, many of the concepts and ideas I've sort of struggled to articulate myself. So thank you for that. I really, really appreciate oh, it. Thanks um, for saying that. That's very kind. No, I really appreciate it. We, we're very passionate. When I started my career as an academic and very passionate about taking the best of academia and, putting it into the real world because there's this huge gap and there's so much amazing research and evidence that hasn't yet found its way into organizations and if, mm. if it could the world would be such a better place we believe and um i think just going back to the purpose of, of these the, the research show is this what we believe is this amazing opportunity right now to kind of you know bring bring to life some of the ideas and concepts that we've all been kind of you know working with on the fringes for many years and actually start to kind of use the the opportunity of this this reset to, to you know make some headway with them trojan horse them in in some way so that's what we're trying to do here and i think this mm. idea of empathy and kindness in organizations is like you know wonderful if we can bring more of that into the workplace then the world work will be better for everybody um just one quick thing before i forget um we did a blog a while ago on, on random acts of kindness, which I'll get Katie to share because it's a little bit of the neuroscience of why random acts of kindness are so helpful, how they work and why they work and how you can kind of really practically build some of that into everyday life. So I'll build on what you said and we can share that as well. But thank you so much for me, David. Really appreciate you making the time for us and wonderful act of kindness from you to us. So thank you for that. So just to finish. Um, <clears throat> thank you, uh, Emma and B. And yeah, I want to extend my thanks to David as well, of course, for, for joining us. And it was a comment that I made before you joined us earlier on when we were preparing. I was talking about the experience of reading the book, The Little Book of Kindness, which I highly recommend to everyone. I think we've put a link in the, in the chat already to it. I, I read the Kindle edition and 
I was talking about the quality of your writing, which is partly this thing we've spoken about already, which is your ability to explain complex ideas in an accessible way. But I also recommend to everyone read the book because the act of reading the book is in itself uh, it, 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 relaxing and it feels like you are receiving the kindness of the author and you're being kind to yourself and taking the time to pause because it's written, it's very carefully written, isn't it? It's, it's, it's brief. Yeah. It's almost like poetry somehow, the, the way it's written. Yeah. It was, uh, what, just tell me briefly how that came about, this little book of kindness. Yeah, well, I was approached by the, the, the publisher, Gaia, who published the little book of mindfulness, the little book of sleep and all that. And they asked me if I could take all of the kindness stuff I've written in other bigger books and make it really condensed and simple and they would illustrate it. And so what I had to do was find even simpler ways of explaining the same concepts that would go along with some nice imagery. So it was a bit of trial and error, but it was great for me because I found even more efficient ways of getting the same points across that I might have used two paragraphs before and I can do it in one sentence now. So it, it was really great. It means that you get all of the information, but in a much, much smaller book. Yeah, I'd certainly recommend it for anyone who hasn't read David's books. It's a really lovely entry point, isn't it? Because as you said, you get the essence of everything. And then in the other books, you can have the fun of exploring the, the theories further. Yeah. And, one, and one final thing for me is I love the calculation you do. We were just talking about the random acts of kindness and the pebble. I love the calculation that you do where you, you talk about one act and then the three degrees of separation. But then you talk about, if you imagine that everyone does four acts based on that one act, and yeah. it, it, what's the number it ends up being that you can affect from, from one act of kindness? 125. That's the, it. The, the, the R number uh, for kindness, you know, we talk about the R number of the coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, uh, that the R number at its peak was 2.5. And so at three layers of infection, you find one person will infect 2.5, who will infect 2.5, who will infect 2.5. And at three layers of transmission, or what's called three degrees of separation, you get about 16 people infected. The R number for kindness is between four and five. In more densely populated areas, it's closer to five. And what you find, if you be kind to someone, that person, because of how you make them feel, will likely be kind or kinder to five people. But each of those five, continuing the R number will be kind or kinder to five people. And that's at two degrees, but at three degrees of separation, you've got five times five times five. And what you tend to find is one act of kindness, even if you don't realize how much you're impacting people, even the small things you do at three degrees of separation are probably impacting through this ripple effect of inspiring others to be kind about 125 people. That's the one. What a, lovely, what a lovely thing to finish on. So uh, all of us, when we go forward this afternoon and we commit an act of kindness, it could potentially be uh, impacting 125 people. Per act of kindness. Wow. Per act of kindness, exactly. Uh, technically, I have one more thing to do, which is to remind everyone that if they haven't already signed up to the show via the Eventbrite link, that's the one to sign up for it. You get all of the resources and uh, information from there. Other than that, uh, we're at time. David, thank you so much. And a remote virtual thank you to Jamil as well, of course, for a really extraordinary, we had a Stanford professor, a best-selling author, the emperor of empathy and the king of kindness, 
both on the same call today. We are lucky people. Um, thank you very much. Uh, Katie, anything else we need to say before we shut down the call? Nothing else from me, just massive thank you. It's been brilliant. It's been such thank a great call. So thank you. Thanks, folks. Thank um, you. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Two weeks' time. Bye. Bye now. Bye, everyone.